0: is a debate between the Harvard University debate team and a collection of inmates in uh, Eastern New York Correctional Facility and they're debating the topic of immigration. And uh, these untrained, unschooled, uh, self-taught inmates bested their competitors at Harvard University. And what's amazing is they also bested uh, the University of Vermont debate team as well as the uh, debate team from West Point, our military academy. It's amazing when you underestimate uh, your competitor. Well, we're going to see in our passage today uh, Jesus in a debate with the religious leaders. In fact, this debate is really going to take all of the day uh, in this last week of Jesus' life. In fact, if you were to read from our passage all the way through chapter 23, it's a series of interrogations, test questions, and debates that Jesus will go through against the leadership of Israel. Now, you know where we are in this passage in Matthew 21. He's entered Jerusalem, so he's disclosed himself to be the king. So the curtains are pulled back. This is who he is. He has, as king, entered the tabernacle, entered the temple, and he has cleansed it and restored it to its rightful worship. He, of course, cursed the fig tree, which was an indictment on the leadership of Israel. And now we find in our passage, going back into the temple to be a king who teaches. And he's preaching the kingdom of God. That's what he's doing in the temple. So he's, clean, he's come in as king, he's cleaned house, and now he's set up shop and he's teaching. And that's where the debate ensues. And, and in this debate that we're going to read about, I want you to understand that Jesus is doing two things. First, he's establishing his authority. We're going to see that in verses 23 through 27. He'll establish his authority. He's going to be challenged in it, but he'll establish it and explain why he has come with authority. And then, and then he's going to explain how we walk in light of the authority. What, what does genuine faith look like under the authority of Christ? So if you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. I'll read 23 all the way through 32. <laughs> it's really two parts regarding the authority of Christ and us living within it. Matthew 21:23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. So he's teaching in the temple and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then also I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they hold that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know. And he answered to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, "Go, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same, And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Okay, so let's look at this first part where Jesus is establishing his authority. We have to deal with this issue if we want to walk with any sort of genuine faith. You see the scene. Jesus is in the temple. Remember last week he healed the blind and the lame? And so you can imagine him teaching. In fact, uh, last passage, in beginning of 21, it said when Jesus came in, the whole city was stirred. So you can imagine all the people being excited about all that Jesus is teaching. He's teaching them about the kingdom of God. He's teaching them about the way of salvation. He's teaching them that he is, in fact, the Messiah. So it shouldn't surprise us that it stirs up these leaders to come and confront him and to challenge him. And they're asking him, you know, Jesus is a non-credentialed, non-degreed individual who acts like he owns the place. So these these chief priests, who were the spiritual authority, and these elders, they were the most influential families in Jerusalem. Nothing happened on a religious or political scene without their involvement. So they're saying, by whose authority? In other words, the authority... Who gave you authority to do this? So there's a real challenge point. Of course, they're saying, by what authority are you doing these things? Well, what things are they referencing? Well, what we looked at last week. He comes in on a donkey proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. He receives the praise of the people, not just the praise, like, oh, great, here's Hosanna, they say. Remember that word? Save us. So they're looking to Jesus for deliverance and salvation. They're calling him the son of David. That was the reference to 2 Samuel, where where David will have a son who will be a king and a government will rest upon his shoulders. So they're looking to him as this Messiah king. But not just that, he goes into the temple and he turns over tables and he cleans house and he, he brings the words of Jeremiah and he slams the leadership and says, you've made my house a den of thieves. He calls it my house. Jesus owns the house. It's like, what authority are you doing these things? Or, or the children praise him. Or Jesus invites the blind and the lame who were prohibited from that part, and he brings them in and heals them. What are you doing these things? I mean, can you imagine? I mean, these religious leaders trying to exercise right authority are saying, by what authority are you claiming to be king? You're receiving the worship. Well, what kind of authority can you have to, make these, to do these things? But not just that. They're also, they're also asking implicitly, by what authority are you saying these things? You know what Jesus was saying? I mean, in chapter 11 of John, before he enters Jerusalem, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's kind of bold. He says, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. He says, I am the light of the world. I mean, Jesus is making these absolute authoritative statements as to who he is. So they come and say, by what authority? So Jesus answers them, right? But he doesn't just give them an answer. He gives them a question. He's not trying to be coy. I don't think he's trying to be elusive. He's already disclosed himself. He knows his has come. He's not hiding anything. But he asks them a question, and this is what I want you to understand in this first section about his authority. He says, what is the nature of John's baptism? Okay, John the Baptist, in other words, he's he's asking the chief priests and the leaders of Israel, tell me what you view. How do you view John's baptism? Not literally his baptism, but his whole ministry, which we read about in Matthew chapter 3. How how do you view that? Remember who John was? John dressed in really wild ways, had a really wild diet. It says he comes out of the wilderness. So you can imagine this guy. And what's the first thing he says? He says, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. That guy's a herald. He's a herald coming. There's a kingdom coming. Repent. And he's calling the people. And the people came. The people came and they were being baptized. They were repenting of their sins. Even the Pharisees. And the Sadducees came out, and he looked at them, and he called them a brood of vipers. He called them to repentance. Hey, they were leaders. They were circumcised. They were the spiritual leaders of Israel. And he saying that's inadequate. You need to be baptized. Why? Because one is coming who is mightier than I. I baptize with water. He baptizes with the Spirit and with fire. He's bringing judgment. He says that the ax is already at the root of the trees. He says he's so worthy, I am unworthy to carry his sandals. That's who's coming. That's who is coming. That's who John is a forerunner for. In fact, he said in John chapter 1, when saw Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, He's mightier than I because He came before me. Speaking to the eternality of Christ. That He had no birth point, as we understand. He has always existed in glory. And he said this, And I saw the Spirit descend upon him like a dove. So what's John's ministry he's talking about? Jesus says, how do you view John's ministry? Well, John's ministry was all propping up Jesus as the Messiah. If you think John is from God, Jesus clearly is. If you think John's a prophet of God, Jesus is most assuredly the Messiah of God. Jesus is connecting his ministry to John. It's a continuation of John's ministry. This is an incredible question to put to these Pharisees. Because they knew they were immediately cornered by that. Because if they said that John was from earth, in other words, he's just thinking up this stuff from his head, then the people would respond in a very negative way. They're in fear of the people. But if they said that Jesus, or if they said that John was from heaven, then the Jews could stand up and say, so why don't you believe Jesus? I mean, you know, it's been said that a smart man or a smart woman is revealed more by the questions they ask than the answers they give. And if that's true, Jesus was very smart. And they said, we don't know. I love that. I mean, think about it. I mean, they're lying at this point. And Jesus, because they thought John's ministry was of the devil. So they were lying. And Jesus says, neither neither will I tell you. Now, I think what Jesus is doing here is it's really a form of judgment. He's denying them any further revelation. He's not going to tell them anything else. I'm not going to tell you anything. I am shutting you down. In authority, I'm closing you off from further revelation from the Messiah. Okay, so that's the scene we have here. Jesus is establishing his authority, even in this judgment of going silent on them. Now, we live in a culture today, this cultural landscape, where tolerance is almost an intellectual achievement. It's a moral virtue. It it is evidence of our progress as men and women. Now, while tolerance, in some measure, is a very good thing in a democracy, in a republic, tolerance is a good thing, but its moved towards now any claims of absolute truth are seen as a power play. Or seen as narrow minded. To make a global claim that Jesus is authoritative in everyone's life, whether you believe or not, that he is the Son of God sent to save the world and will come back to judge all things, restoring all things to the Father, to say that is seen as narrow minded, pig headed, even backwaterish. Now, A few weeks back, I had told you that many people will throw some bones to Jesus. He was a good man. He was a moral teacher. He was a good leader. I think you see from this passage, he doesn't allow that. That's not what he's claiming to be. It's not like he's, you know, the Queen of England has a certain dignity. She's accorded a certain honor. But she doesn't have an authority to make law and to establish law and to keep law. People don't go to her. She doesn't render judgment. She doesn't find people or imprison people. She is a woman of honor, but she's not a woman of authority. Jesus isn't someone that we just say, He's a good man. He's a dignified man. He's claiming an authority that is radical. And this, how you respond to what I'm saying is a good diagnostic as to where your soul is with God. See, the world by and large, many of them just ignore what I've said. It's unhelpful, it's unnecessary, they just ignore it. I mean, whatever, you know. It's not impacting them. It may do them no good for you to say, yeah, but tomorrow is, might not be the same as today. But they just ignore it. Others, and I think this is even in the church, There is a rejection of this authority. There's a rejection. We see it in these chief priests, right? They have rejected his authority. Now remember, uh, rejection of Jesus on the street isn't simply because they don't have wisdom or they don't have information or there's not enough evidence. We don't reject Jesus for those things. And you see it in these chief priests. You know, they were there. Many of them were there when he raised Lazarus from the dead. So they saw some major power there, guy coming out of a grave. They were there when he healed the blind and the lame. Those blind and the lame would have always been there. Those Pharisees would have known those blind and lame by name. And boom, now they're seeing and now they're walking. And they still reject him. So rejection doesn't come from this lack of, I'm not convinced yet, the evidence is in. No, it's a pride thing. It, it is the pride of men and women that do not want to submit to the authority. Listen, Jesus is coming and saying, you on your best day are inadequate. You needed me to come to save you. You needed me to come and deliver you. That's that's his message. That that what is really wrong with me is me. That's what's really wrong. It's not my environment. It's not my education. It's not my personality style. It's not the woman I married. It's not the children I have, the job I have, the place I live. It's me. I have the problem. And and that is offensive to people. We don't like to hear that. Oftentimes, people in the Christian community don't want to hear that. They, They want to move it and push it to the side. These religious leaders didn't see themselves as the problem. They had their religion. They practiced their religion. Everything's good. We don't need that kind of radical salvation that you're talking about. Now, this just, just by implication, let me throw this in as a freebie. Th- th- there is a kind of an implicit warning here that human leadership, human authority, uh, is not immune to error. It's, it's not immune to error. We, we, particularly church leadership, is not immune to error. We fail. We cannot be simply trusted that whatever is said is true. That's why you always tie it back to the scriptures. Do you realize that one-third of the clergy in the Church of England deny the bodily resurrection of Christ? Jesus said, I'm the resurrection, but we're not going to accept that. Or you have seminaries across this land that do not teach the historic Christian doctrines. Or John Stott once was invited to a world council. He was an Anglican uh, minister. Uh, England, many years, both sides of the Atlantic, great, great evangelical thinker, um, very clear, died probably 10-ish years ago. He was invited to the World Council of Churches, and they asked him to speak. And so he got up, and here's what he declared. He declared five things that are necessary for the church. He says, The doctrine of man's lostness, that we are lost apart from God unilaterally coming to deliver us. He says, Confidence in the truth, the relevance, and the power of the biblical gospel. Third, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Fourth, the urgency of evangelism. And fifth, a personal experience with Jesus Christ. These are essential to the church. When he sat down, he sat down next to a theologian by the name of Stendhal, a Swedish theologian teaching at Harvard University. And he leaned over, and this theologian said, I did not agree with one word you said. Now, that is in the seminaries being taught. So, so many people, even within the church, reject this. But there, there's, a, there's one other that I'd like to apply. There's some ignore it, some reject it. Some of us, I think, have a benign rejection. This is a little more insidious. And I'm asking you to consider, you know, we will affirm the absolute authority of Jesus. Uh, but in life, but in life, we hold to it partially. You know, that what he says, so, so out of our mouths can come things like, well, I know the Bible says it, but. So, so what's the but leading us to other than an excuse of why we shouldn't or can't do what he just said. Or we say, God wouldn't ask me to do this. Perhaps forgive someone who's really hurt you. We tend to take his authority, and we take it on our terms and not his terms. And that's just a challenge for us to consider. Where are we on that? I mean, in your own personal life, how often do you find yourself kind of skirting the absolute authority that Jesus has over his people? So he establishes his authority, I think, clearly. It will be fully established at the consummation of all things. But, but how do we actually live under the authority? How does genuine faith thrive under this authority that he's just declared? Well, look with me back at the parable. You see Jesus now, so moving to 28 to 32 now, the parable is going to kind of explain with both a warning and an encouragement that this is what it looks like to be under the authority of Christ. So Jesus, you notice, starts with a question again. What do you think? So he's asking these religious leaders, what do you think? I want you to give a ruling. I want you to make a decision here. So he's appealing to them. And he says there's this father, he has two sons. Okay, The first son, he goes and asks, probably the younger son, because he's asked to do manual labor first. But go out in the vineyard and work. And the son refuses. Now, right away, you should be getting your back up. You should be thinking, this guy's a brash, brat, rude, obnoxious. In this culture, a, a patriarchal society, the father asks you to go in the field? It isn't like today, where we've got to discuss and collaborate and try to win the support of our children to do what we're asking them to do. I just, I just cut to the quick and say, you're out in the backyard for a week if you don't want to do it. That's simple. They, my children, I think, probably heard this, song, this parable more often than they wanted to, but the reality of it is, he's breaking the commandment to honor your father and mother. This wouldn't be tolerated at all. But, but notice what it says. He changed his mind. That word, the Greek word is repent. He repented. He saw his sinfulness... And he obeyed. Okay, then the second son, the second son, you notice in the text, he says, I go, sir. You love that kind of language. The word actually is curious, the Greek word. I go, Lord. Yes, Lord, I will go. I mean, if there was a crowd of people around, boy, that would be impressive. That's the guy I'm putting my money on. He's going to be the successful one. What, What a good young man. Look at him the way he bows. But he didn't go. He didn't go, it, it, was, it, was, it looked good, it sounded good, it appeared good, yeah, everything was working, he just didn't go, he didn't end up obeying. And so Jesus says, so which one did the will of the Father? Which one, I, I mean, who was the real son? Who has the true relationship with the Father? Who's actually obeying? And of course the Pharisees, they say the first son, and they're right, but they're also guilty as they're going to find out in just a minute. So the first son. So let me explain this parable real quick. Just put some color on it. Okay, the father is obviously Jesus. Or sorry, the father is obviously God. He is God. The two sons are representing two classes of people, not just two individuals. And you know that because look at 31 and 32. He says, truly I say to you, Tax collectors and prostitutes are getting into the kingdom of God before you. So he's talking to the religious leadership now. He says, before you. In other words, they're the second son, which would make the first son the tax collectors and prostitutes. Now, at this point, we're kind of in shock. Now, I know you've probably read through this parable, and you've heard it before, and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. I, I really, we prayed, we had a wonderful prayer time this morning, you know, just as a reminder to all of us here, I want to get this cleared up right now. From 8 to 8.30, elders, staff, Rick Linder, we pray and y'all can come. From 8 to 8.30, we're just praying for you. It's what we're doing. Half an hour, read the scripture and we pray for you. And then from 8.30 to 8.45, we have three different members of the church come in and rotate a couple times a year to get through the list twice that you come in and pray with us. So, so you're, more, you're more than welcome uh, to always attend that eight. Well, you can attend both, frankly. But we prayed eight, and we were praying for you to understand the shock value that this would have had to the first audience. The shock value for Jesus to say, truly I say to you. That that Greek expression isn't easily translated, but it really is saying, pay attention, listen up. This is information you need to have to live rightly. You need this more than you need anything else you're going to hear today. And he's saying tax collectors and prostitutes are getting into the kingdom ahead of you. Now remember what a tax collector is. A tax collector is a man who would pay a Roman government for the right to collect taxes from his own countrymen. So he'd pay the Roman government, and then with the power of the Roman military, he would exact taxes from his own people, and he would have to pay a certain amount to the government to meet their quota. Anything above that was his to pocket. And so it just led to great gouging to fill your own pockets. And they became very wealthy, and they were very immoral. They threw lavish parties. They were alcoholics. It was a mess of a group of people. They were traitors and criminals. You know, we think about, you hear about the French during the, World War, during the Second World War when they collaborate, collaborated with the Germans to try to advance their own ends. You know, they were run out of towns in France. They were killed in France. You collaborated with the enemy? That's what a tax collector was. He was the, he was the wicked man of all men. And the prostitutes. I don't need to tell you what a prostitute does. She wasn't accepted in society. She'd surely never be accepted in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says tax collectors and prostitutes are getting into the kingdom ahead of you religious folk. That's incredible. I mean, it really is. They're the first son. They're living in rebellion to their father, just like the first son. They're living in rebellion. They're living their own lives. They're pursuing their own ends. But then they heard John's gospel. They heard, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And by God's grace, they repented. And they sought the forgiveness of God. They pleaded for his mercy. And you know what? They're entering the kingdom of God. They heard the message. And then Jesus turns to the Pharisees. You're the second son. You gave the right answers. You know the theology. You practice the ritual observances. But when John preached, he says, you didn't believe him. You didn't believe you needed a savior with radical salvation coming with him. You didn't need that. You had the proppings and the trappings of religion. You didn't believe him when he preached. But, But this is a final. This is the final hit. He says, you didn't believe them when you saw tax collectors and prostitutes believing him. In other words, when you started to see radically sin-broken people coming through repentance to Christ for forgiveness of sins, that should have been your marker. The Messiah is here. Because that was the mark that the kingdom of God has come by the drawing in of the broken, the tax collector and repentant. They didn't get it. This is why Jesus is a revolutionary. This is why Jesus should cause religious people to tremble. Because he doesn't do it our way. Come ye sinners. What, did that song not stir your soul? What kind of God are we dealing with that actually goes for and cares for the broken and the, and the weak and the prostitutes? And Who goes for them? This is the revolutionary. That, this is the revolution he was coming to bring. Here you've got the religious. They're doing everything right. And they're, they're relying on that. And they don't get in. The irreligious, the broken, get in. So what this parable is, is it's really both a warning and encouragement. First, it's a warning. And the parable is intended to paint you into one of the two positions. So you're to be asking yourself, what would my life evidence? Am I the first son or am I the second son? This is really important, especially in a cleaned up society like we are. You know, we're not downtown, by skid row, which is broken people coming in here because there's a meal afterwards, and that's why they're here. We're pretty cleaned up people, so it, it, it's a warning to the religious first. It's a warning to those of us who have a history. We can look back. We can see that we're moral. We've seen that we're consistent. We see that our relationship with God it is perhaps, hey, I'm a good father. I'm a good mother. I. I I take care of my family, I go to church, I pay my taxes. And it's in these things that we find a confidence with God that's the scary part. It's when we begin to rest on those things that that look at my life. You can tell the markers of this kind of hypocritical religion, this religion of the second son. There's a certain degree of confidence in my knowledge of Scripture. There's a certain degree that I put, more, I put more weight on the traditions that I follow than maybe the people that I walk past. There's a certain degree of I'm really concerned what people think about me and my spiritual well being. These are some of the markers that, that we have of a religion maybe that is of more form than substance. You know, we perhaps begin to think that with my life of faithfulness, I mean, God almost He doesn't owe me one, but, but I know He's going to be grateful to me for how much've I've striven to, to do, you know life rightly, or, or, or we get upset when we hear things like when Tom's blasting away, saying that you need a radical salvation. It's kind of offensive, or you think, well, every, that guy over there needs to hear, it, but not me. I don't need to be reminded of that. See. Grace, a true gospel of grace, is threatening to the moral because we can't control it. If if my condition and position with God is generated by my morality, I can turn the dials and move the levers. I can try harder. I can start reading my Bible every day. I can can begin making inroads in my own personal development in, in that I feel comfortable with God. Grace threatens us because it's so unilaterally given by God. We can't control it. It's a threatening thing to the moral. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm reading through his biography, so you'll probably hear some quotes from it for the next number of weeks as I'm reading it. But here's what he says about this idea of speaking to the religious. He says, present-day religion far too often soothes the conscience instead of awakening it and producing a sense of self-satisfaction and a eternal security rather than a sense of unworthiness and the likelihood of eternal damnation. He says, It is perfectly clear in the pages of the New Testament that no man can be saved until at some time or another he has felt desperate about himself. Just have a little bit more, so hang with me. He says, There is something even worse about the situation as I see it that is the present day preaching does not even annoy men. It leaves them precisely where they were without a ruffle and without the slightest disturbance. The church is regarded as a sort of dispensary where drugs and soothing mixtures are distributed and in which everyone should be eased and comforted. And one theme of the church must be the love of God. Anyone who happens to break these rules and produces a disturbing effect on members of his congregation is regarded as an objectionable person. He asks the question, Have you ever seen yourself as one so helplessly, hopelessly involved in sin? and so helpless, face-to-face with life and the power of evil, that nothing but Christ's death could save you? If not, then you are in the precise position of these Jews. Now, I'm not trying to cause the afflicted to be further afflicted. I want to comfort the afflicted. I want to afflict the comforted, frankly. And, And the reality of it is, is what degree is there of form in your faith and not substance. What I love about this passage is, you know, Jesus said to them, he's really inviting them. He says, tax collectors and prostitutes are getting into the kingdom ahead of you. He doesn't say instead of you, but ahead of you. In other words, there's still time to repent. I mean, for those of us, particularly if you're non-Christian here, Uh, repentance is seen in that second son. He's a brash, young, bratty boy. And yet, yet, he's he's a little bit like his cousin, his cousin the prodigal, who asked for his father's inheritance before his father was dead. It's a big no-no. I mean, you don't do that in that kind of culture. You don't ask. You're saying to the father, I would rather have you dead and get the cash in hand than have you alive with me. But by God's grace, the tax collectors and sinners, and you, read, you heard the quote from last week, with C.S. Lewis, you know the prostitute's life isn't so worth living that she doesn't consider you know, Christianity to be a, a glorious thing, the forgiveness and the beauty and the purity of it. But, but um, he saw his life, by God's grace, repented and was accepted. Not unlike, again, the cousin, the prodigal, who it says came to his senses or repented and then was forgiven. And and so here's what repentance is. Genuine faith, if we have a genuine faith that is substance and not just form, there's going to be the aroma of repentance. When I say repentance, I'm talking about repentance literally means a changing of the mind. I changed my mind about who I am. So if I thought I was moral and I was good and God must surely love me because look at who I am and look at all that I've done, if, if this is the, then I'm going to change my mind. And I'm, No, I am a broken sinner in need of God's grace. I'm going to change my mind about the way I view myself. And I am in desperate need of a Savior to deliver me. And I still do, even now as a believer. God, you, you must save me. If somehow your salvation train went off track, I'd be off track with it because I need the gospel every day. So repentance is changing the mind. For those of us who are like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, which is kind of a parallel parable, it's a bit of a redundancy, but, but it's kind of a, a similar parable. The, um, we want to repent of our religiosity. We want to repent of our religion. We want to repent of thinking that, you know what, I was pretty good. And I can always tell because when I ask people, you know, that if, if you were to die and stand before God, what would he say to you? you know, would he just accept you? And people generally say, I haven't been that bad. I've been pretty good. You know, right away, what are they resting on at that point? They're resting on what they have done or have not done, as opposed to resting on all that Christ has done. He's done it all. We just sang it. So <clears throat> repentance is kind of a changing of the mind over either our religiosity, Or our sin. Many of us have walked through very difficult times. Right now, some of you are just absolutely forlorn in sin. You're weighted down. You feel like you fail, 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 fail. God could never save you. That is a a situation that is feeling like this increasing darkness comes over your soul. You've been coming here for years, and you just can't seem to see any change in your life. And you feel broken and forlorn. He says, come ye sinners poor and broken i mean repentance is just a sorrow over our sin it's not claiming victim i'm a victim it's n- it's no victimization here we're victims in america no 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 with the gospel we're culpable we're guilty we're guilty of sin that sorrow over sin leads to confession of sin that we confess to god god i have failed i have failed you not complaining but confessing, this is what repentance is. This is the, and, and, then, and then God promises, his word promises us to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us. Those of you who have failed over and over, you're cleansed from all the unrighteousness. Yes, in this life, we're still working out our salvation. And we do trip and we do fall. But not one of those given to the son will be lost, not one. There's that assurance after confession of sin. So repentance, true repentance, and that is for not just if you're a non-Christian here and you've never repented, that is the entry point for the faith. That's how we become Christians is we repent of our sins. We ask God, Christ, be the authority of my life and lead me. But for the Christian here, we repent every day. It's like one theologian, Cornelius Plantinga, just said it's like taking out the garbage. You know, take it out every day. We repent every day. Because we sin, and that's how we renew and re-enjoy the relationship Christ has established for us. So repentance is the first thing, but then there's the obedience that follows. And here's, the, here's further fruit. Obedience that follows. R.T. France is another New Testament scholar, and he said, he said this about, um, about when you repent, obedience is a byproduct of our repentance. He says this, it is not what one claims or promises, that's what the Pharisees did, but what one actually does that counts. Our obedience matters. Our our walking out in light of what we know to be the will of God matters. Now, it doesn't matter to merit your salvation. No, Christ has merited salvation for us. But our obedience to the word of God is born out of love now. In other words, it's the grace of what God has done for us in Christ. When we look in our past, he has saved us. He has protected us, and it's out of the overflow of that love that we want to walk in obedience. So so we don't obey so that God will love us. We obey because God has loved us. So out of the overflow of our joy in him, we obey. And this is what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Same language that I'm reading right now. But your obedience is born out of grace. Let me just finish with this. In the Ten Commandments, we always think the Ten Commandments, that's kind of God's ironclad law. There it is in stone. We've got f- Remember what precedes the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt, brought you to the land I'm bringing you to. That's grace. That's unilateral deliverance by God for his glory and for your joy. And out of that grace, we obey. So the two marks of genuine faith that you see is repentance and obedience, trust and obey. Obedience matters. It does. I mean, we want to look at our lives. and Which son are we? Jesus has established his authority in 24, in 23 through 27, and then he explains what that authority in the life of the believer looks like. We are a repentant people, a joyful people, that we can go to God and be forgiven of our sins and, and, and what happens is, is, as my repentance increases, it doesn't lead to greater despair, but greater delight in what Jesus Christ has done for me. And then out of the overflow of that delight, I want to love my wife. I want to love you. I want to serve you. I want to sacrifice for you. It's not born out of have to. It's born out of love that he has displayed for us perfectly in Christ. So let's take a minute now and just silently confess. For those of you who perhaps you feel <coughs> admonished, then... then allow conviction of your soul to give forth in confession. For those of you who are, who are weak, I pray this has helped you. Appeal to him for grace and mercy. Ask him for encouragement if you feel fainthearted. And then uh, I'm going to ask Ray to close us in prayer. Thank you.